Coming up on 642, and as confirmed cases of COVID-19 continue to rise, so does concern the virus will have a personal and financial impact all around the world. Joining us is Ipsos's Daryl Bricker with the latest numbers. Hi, Daryl. Are you there, Daryl? Daryl? We had him a second ago. We've lost him. Are you there, Daryl? Okay, well, we're trying to uh, reach Daryl Bricker. Uh, We've got him from Ipsos. They do exclusive polling for us here at Global. And, uh, I mean, it's really not surprising that the concern rate would be rising as the number of cases continue to rise around the world. They're saying, yeah, personal and financially, as you mentioned, that impact, and we heard that yesterday from the U.S. Reserve, uh, dropping that one point. And at the same time, We've got that uh, announcement this morning that uh, Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Pelosi is expected to lower our interest rate a quarter of a percent, which means if you have those credit lines, Mm. if you're uh, applying for a new mortgage, it's bad news with the coronavirus, but maybe good news in your pocketbook. All right, we've tracked Daryl down. Hi, Daryl. Hey, how you doing? I had the time zones wrong. Oh, no worries. Hey, that's okay. Thank you so much for joining us. So we we're just uh, breaking down or talking about some of the numbers that, that you folks at Ipsos have come up with, and really not much of a surprise that people's concern level has increased with the number of cases. What, what did you see when you break down the numbers? Uh, when you break down the numbers, you're seeing a couple of things that are really interesting. And we've been doing this. This is, I think, the third wave that we've done, not just in Canada, but in another in another nine countries. And what we're seeing is that the concern is moving from being something out there to being something that's here. So when we, uh, when we ask people about, for example, whether or not they think that there's going to be uh, a big impact on their, uh, their financial situation, in Canada, 37% of us see that that's likely something that's going to be happening. And that's up 20 points in the space of a week. So quite clearly, people are, are, are watching things like, for example, the stock market. Uh, and the idea that it is something that, as I said before, is going to be affecting places like China or maybe northern Italy, but Canada is going to be immune from that. Well, about a, uh, 20, just over 20% of us now think that this is something that's going to have a significant impact on our country. Again, up a, a, about six points over the space of the last week. So as I said before, something that was out there that's now moving here. Well, you know, I know we have increased concerns in our nation. How do we stack up? Because I know this was a broad survey. How do we stack up uh, compared to other nations? Uh, Compared to places like Japan, where 65% of the population think it's going to have a significant impact, or Vietnam, where the number's up to 63%. Obviously, we're not even close to where they are yet. Uh, They're living really approximate to to, uh, China, so obviously they would just... From, for geographic reasons, would feel that way. But even countries like, for example, France, uh, now up to half of people in, in the France that we surveyed saying that they think it's going to have a significant impact on their country. So uh, th- this is now uh, moving kind of almost in concentric circles away from the epicenter in China mm. out to many other places. What did you find in terms of why people think the virus is now entering their country and becoming a big problem? Well, this was a really interesting question for us because uh, is this something in which we're seeing a failure of the healthcare system? In other words, people feel that uh, the reason that this is spreading is because of countermeasures that, that have been put in place by various countries uh, are not doing what they should do. Or are people regarding this more almost like a, a random event? It's almost impossible to forecast where it's going to be occurring, which I think is what's adding a, a lot to the scare around this. Sure. Uh, and what we're finding is that in Canada, almost two-thirds, actually slightly better than two-thirds of us think that it's more like a random event. It's impossible to predict 
where it's going to show up. So the ability to control something that's unpredictable is something that people know is not very strong. So uh, the sense that it's out there, it's coming here, it's almost impossible to predict how it's going to find its way into a a country or a population is something that's worrying uh, Canadians. Is this the kind of uh, thing that you're going to revisit because it seems to be kind of a moving target at this point? Can we expect uh, perhaps some more uh, research done on this in the coming weeks? Absolutely. I have to tell you, you know, three weeks or four weeks ago when we first started looking at this, when uh, when we proposed doing it on a global level, I sort of thought, you know, it's a bit of an overreaction. I mean, it's really something that's just happening in China. Um, what I, I think now was it wasn't enough of a reaction. Uh, quite clearly, uh, I have not seen anything outside of perhaps 9-11 or the, uh, the, the financial meltdown in the United States back in 2008, uh, 2008 that have had such a rapid and considerable impact on so many things as this coronavirus has. So uh, since we're in the business of keeping on top of what people all over the world are thinking, we're going to be tracking it really closely. And I have no doubt the results will be dramatically different in another week or two when we talk to you about the latest numbers at that point, too. Exactly. And uh, the place you'll hear about it is on Global. You got it. Thanks so much, Daryl. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO, and uh, should let you know that uh, they've tested for COVID-19 here in Alberta, and not one case has turned up. 173 tests done as of February 28th, all of which were negative. Minus two, partly cloudy, 820 on the morning news. We've seen a lot of anger in the past few weeks as rail blockades gridlocked Canada's economy, but that shouldn't justify what we've seen happen in the same time frame, a rise in racist behavior. Global's Heather Urex-West joins us now with the story. And Heather, uh, just how bad is the situation become? You know, I think that we really started to notice it online. Um, we have, uh, of course, we have globalnews.ca. All our stories go up there. They go out on our social media channels as well. And we have a, um, a team of social media journalists that monitor comments. We, we, you know, we open comments up and people are entitled to their opinions. But we monitor these comments for, for anything that is racist, hateful, or incites violence. Now, Across the country in recent weeks, the amount of these types of comments directed at Indigenous people have been, um, it's just been overwhelming. There have been hundreds and hundreds of comments right across the country in every local market that have had to be deleted. And and so I was speaking yesterday to one of the of the journalists in charge of, of moderating those comments, and she said, this is unlike anything that we've ever seen. It's It's pretty vile stuff, a lot of uh, calls for violence against Indigenous people, Indigenous activists, and uh, yeah, so that was sort of what tipped us off, that there, something was happening here, and uh, this is is a big issue right now. It's disgusting, and you're, you're covering it, you're talking about it, you're doing a story for Global National, and I think it's a good thing that we, we call this out and make sure that people realize what's being said, and that it needs to stop. I mean, you can disagree with the blockades all you want, but there's no need for that kind of vitriol. Yeah, and just to lump everyone together, an entire race of people, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously that's a separate issue, what people are are protesting um, for, the the, the blockades, but, you know, to to take that a step further and to to wish violence upon a a group of people, yeah, that's definitely a a whole different issue. But it's also a time to kind of talk about this and and recognize that, uh, you know, racism against Indigenous people I think it's always present. Mm-hmm. Every Indigenous person that I've, I've spoken with about this story has kind of brought this this up to me as well, that it's sort of always just sort of under the surface. And anytime something like this happens, that there's 
protests, that there's blockades, that, that maybe we're talking about the missing and murdered Indigenous women's report. Anytime anything's in the news, they see it kind of bubble to the surface and they'll see, you know, more looks, more comments, more jabs online. So, you know, it's really something to, to keep in mind that this is something that Indigenous people deal with all the time. Well, hopefully we can uh, move along and uh, get past this as a society. Heather, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That's Heather Yorex-West, Global News Reporter. Super Tuesday is over. They're calling it the most significant day of voting in the party's 2020 presidential nomination. With all the details, we're joined this morning by Global's Washington reporter, Reggie Cicchini. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. So who was it super for yesterday? Well, it was super for Joe Biden and for a good number of reasons. I mean, his campaign was essentially DOA on the approach to Super Tuesday because he got off to such a sluggish start. He had no wins until he was in South Carolina. But that South Carolina win last night, followed by a massive endorsement from Representative Clyburn, followed by some high-level endorsements from the Washington establishment, including members from the former Obama administration, really propelled him back into the race. He won a significant number of states. He's expected to pick up delegates in states that Bernie Sanders won as well. This uh, goes to show that that kind of coalescing around the moderate uh, candidate that was in the race right now, the backing of some former uh, uh, failed out and bailed out uh, presidential candidates really did wonders for the Biden campaign, ate into that lead for Bernie Sanders, and has now put Joe Biden as the front runner in this race. One of the headlines I uh, got a chuckle from was, not Biden his time anymore. <laughs> oh, they're so clever. <laughs> but Bernie uh, is still showing some strength in California, and I understand California is still under count. It is. California is probably going to take at least a week to get through the votes. It's a behemoth state. There are millions and millions of bail-in ballots that need to uh, mail-in ballots that need to be looked at as well. They could be, uh, you know, ballots that are for Pete Buttigieg, for Amy Klobuchar, for people no longer in the race but were still on uh, on the ballot when people were uh, casting these and putting them in the mail. So there's things that need to be worked through. That said, Bernie Sanders is the projected winner in uh, California, but it's a proportional delegate allocation. So we don't know how many of those 415 delegates are going to go to Sanders, it won't be enough, though, to give him that quote-unquote insurmountable lead that he had been looking for going into last night. Reggie, what does it mean for Elizabeth Warren and for Mike Bloomberg? I mean, Elizabeth Warren didn't even win her home state. Is she and both of them really essentially out of this? Well, I mean, it's hard to see how they're able to go forward. Elizabeth Warren not winning her home state, that is an embarrassing moment for her campaign. The fact that Joe Biden was able to get more votes in that state than her uh, goes to show that she simply just didn't have the support and there was simply more support for Bernie Sanders, to whom she's ideologically aligned with. Uh, she maintains, though, last night saying that she is in this race to win it. She is going to not bow out, uh, which is going to potentially split the few remaining votes that are available. Someone like Mike Bloomberg, though, this goes to show that you cannot buy your way into mm -hmm. an election this late in the game. He spent half a billion dollars. The return on investment was not what he was looking for. He wasn't viable in, uh, in about nine states last night. He says that he's going to reassess his campaign later today. We'll see if there's a, a further winnowing of this kind of Democratic pool as the hours go by. Between uh, Warren and Bloomberg, who are we expecting if they do, assuming they're going to bow out, who are we expecting to throw their votes behind? Well, I mean, look, Elizabeth Warren has stood with Bernie Sanders from the beginning. It would be hard to see her throwing her support behind anyone else. Uh, that said, she has 
so few supporters on the ground right now, you know, she could throw her support behind Joe Biden simply because he could be in the lead and she might see that as the best way to beat Donald Trump later on this year. Someone like Mike Bloomberg, he may not throw his support behind anybody, but what he has is deep pockets. So he may simply throw his money around in order to back up who he thinks, uh, you know, could go up against Donald Trump or at least who could win on the races down the ballot. There's a lot of cash that can make influence uh, that can be influential in an election campaign. And I think if we see Bloomberg bow out, he's going to use that cash to his and the party's advantage. Speaking of influence, just say let's pie in the sky that Biden becomes the next president. Does he look to an Elizabeth Warren or a Mike Bloomberg potentially to be running mates? Is that why they all want to kind of go to the winning side, hopefully? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, Joe Biden, uh, you know, he's an establishment Democrat and he knows that he's, you know, got to pack his cabinet. He's got to pack that ticket with somebody that's going to get him elected against Donald Trump. But remember, Joe Biden also does well with the minorities across uh, the United States. And there has been conversations that maybe he would tap uh, Stacey Abrams from Georgia. Mm -hmm. Maybe he would tap Kamala Harris to be on that ticket with him as well to kind of show that he is that candidate that embraces everyone and does well with outside white uh, uh, voting groups in the United States. So I think it's too early to tell uh, Ted Cruz is the only person who has been a non kind of ticket contender who's decided to announce a vice president during the, uh, the during the candidacy stage. So uh, it, it, I think it's still too early to say who uh, who Joe Biden might actually try to put on that ticket with him. So we wait for the California tally. Then what's next, Reggie? Wait for the California tally. Then we have another huge Tuesday that takes place next week, and there's going to be some big primaries to watch. Florida, Illinois, and Ohio, with almost 600 delegates up for grabs. Florida being the biggest one, 219. There's been a lot of talk that that's going to be Joe Biden's state to win, and if he does win that, it's going to give him another massive delegate push. It's going to be incredibly difficult for someone like Bernie Sanders, who is losing in these southern states, to continue uh, to remain any kind of viable candidate, with Joe Biden just surging so much heading into next Tuesday. Well, the Super Tuesday behind us. Here's uh, hoping you have a wonderful Wednesday, Reggie. (laughs) Thank you for your time this morning. Weekend's only a few days away. (laughs) Hallelujah. Thanks, Reggie. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. A tornado ripped through downtown Nashville, Tennessee, early Tuesday morning, turning buildings into matchsticks, claiming the lives of at least 25 people. Former Flames coach Terry Crisp lives in Nashville now. He saw and felt the impact of the storm over the past few days. Good morning, coach. Good morning, Sue. Andrew, how are you all doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. I know a difficult time. It's been, you know, sad to see what's happening in downtown Nashville. Most people would never have expected something like that. What did you see when daylight broke on Tuesday morning? Probably just devastation. And the thing is, we were sort of uh, blessed to save because we were a mile south of where the, uh, the tornado path went through. And so we had just some of the rain and a little bit of the wind and whatnot. But the thing that amazed Sheila and I, we woke up in the morning and obviously we're all glued to our televisions because it had gone through. But how how a storm, a tornado can go through above you and reach speeds of 165 miles an hour. And, and I'm not an expert on this by any means, but 165 miles an hour and the, the devastation that it wreaked and the havoc. It only took four and a half to five minutes from the time it started out at uh, John Toon Airport uh, west of town till it ended up in Putnam County, east of town. Five minutes. Wow. And when you look at the TV and the pictures and that, it still boggles my mind how much destruction in that short a time a tornado can, uh, can do. And, Coach, you know it. You can see the destruction. You know people have been displaced. But the buildings, the structures, the cars, those are just things I can only imagine the state that the people, your neighbors and, and friends, 
uh, are in at this point, including yourself? Oh, uh, you know what, Andrew? And the hardest part is, like Sue just said, like, there's 24, 25 confirmed dead, including them, some children. It's just devastating. But they, they had had, like, they started about a day ago, 88 missing people they couldn't account for. They've got that number down to 22 this morning. We were watching. They found, you know, a lot of them were there, but they found some of them. And we had a, a friend of ours whose mother was missing, and they found her, unfortunately, under the rubble. And you just can't go through. Never mind the, the storm has hit and gone and the devastation. But you're still looking for loved ones yeah. and trying to find them. And, and that's got to be so hard not knowing. And and if you're standing there looking at a pile of rubble and, and thinking that one of your loved ones or a neighbor or somebody's underneath that, and you can't do anything. You just have to wait until they come with the machinery not to do it. It's it, That's heartbreaking. It really is. Coach, was there no early warning? Did you not get texts or messages on your phones or anything to say that this was coming towards the town, the city? Yeah, they did. We have... Uh, uh, sirens here and our sirens were off but we didn't we were a mile away so ours were, were the one the closest to us didn't go because the storm wasn't that close the other ones did go off but when it hit it come out of the west uh of the Memphis coming west to east and when it hit the airport the not our main one but another one then it realized and by then it was just full steam on when yeah. that's where it picked up speed and and the airport that i'm referring to the, the john tune airport it's just a little uh, other town, and that's where it really picked up. And then by the, by the time it got to Putnam, and, and I was listening to a gentleman this morning, and his house was totally gone, but he said he was lucky enough to got the warning and get into the safe room. And he said it seemed like an hour that the storm was banging his house and tearing it apart, which might have been a half a minute. And he said he get, when he got outside, he got outside and looked, and his neighbor's house was gone totally gone he said he looked up he said it was a beautiful clear night sky the stars were shining it was eerie quiet and he said 45 40 seconds ago he was in the middle of a tornado he says it's the eeriest thing you'll ever go through and let's talk about how uh, deep it hit in the, the center of Nashville and uh, Music Row in, in the Bridgestone Arena. Uh, is is it still uh, 100% operational? You, you know what, Andrew? We were bl- uh, blessed to say our, our downtown wasn't hit. It stayed up above. It was north of the downtown area. It almost followed a, a parallel pattern to Highway 40 above us. And it hit the outlying districts to the north. But the main Broadway and, and all of the Bridgestone and them, were all untouched, unfortunately for everybody. And they opened up the Bridgestone Arena. We opened up our practice, the Centennial uh, Complex, for all of the people to go, the families, whatever. And Nashville is probably the most giving city I've ever played in, and we've been to a lot of cities, and the most caring. That's why they call it the Volunteer State. I'm watching the TV today, and the volunteers that come out, we had a flood here bunch of years ago and they had this city cleaned up in no time the people themselves and the, the support that they throw towards each other is unbelievable it, it really is well we're so happy that you terry and sheila all okay and you know our hearts go out to those who who were lost in in that terrible storm thank you so much for joining us and, and letting us know what's happening down in nashville today Thank you so very much. We uh, we appreciate your feelings and your reach out. We'll pass that on. And uh, you all stay safe, too. And to all of my family in Calgary and grandchildren and that, you all stay safe also. Thank you very much, Sue, Andrew. Thanks, Terry. That's former Flames coach Terry Crisp. 
The town of Drumheller went from a mining town in the 40s to a summer tourist town full of dinosaurs. And now in 2020, the town is looking to transform itself again. Joining us to talk about what that might look like is Drumheller Mayor Heather Kohlberg. Hi, Heather. Hi, good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a lofty goal to try and transform the image of a town. So how do you do that? What's your plan? Well, well, first of all, we're still proud to be the dinosaur capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So that we're not going to change because we're still the third largest destination. And uh, but we're you know we just want people to know that we've got so many amazing things. We've got hiking, biking, river adventures. Like there's so much more to offer. Uh, we're just working on a lot of. Um, we're creating this incredible millennial group that um, just really they're super inspiring because they have so many great ideas and they want to bring you know another avenue to our, our community. They want people to come here and, you know, we have the tech opportunity with the, with the unbelievable fiber optics that we have here in the Valley. So, you know, the millennials see that whole living at home, working at home, being able to enjoy the, you know, nature and stuff. So we're really promoting that side of, of life, you know, a lot of, a lot more than just dinosaurs. When you say millennial group mayor, uh, who does, who is that comprised of? What, what sorts of uh, people are at the table? There are people actually from from business community, you know, young people that have started businesses, uh, people that manage. You know, we've got, for example, you know, Dustin, who who's the manager of the Drumhill Dragons organization. We've got Nick, who runs a Valley Brewing in town. I've got one of our young counselors on the committee. There's just kind of all walks of life. We've got a couple artists on the on the committee, and they're just bringing a whole different view to to the community. And that's, I mean, let's face it, that's that's kind of key to to any community, really, is is keeping things young, keeping things fresh and, and ever-changing. And you mentioned that fiber optic technology. Is that something different that is in Drum that is not elsewhere? Yes, actually, we're one of the, we were one of TELUS's pilot projects. And, you know, besides you have Shaw and, and a couple other with Reality Bites. But, yeah, it's something that is incredible here when you think of living in this valley, and being able to live just about anywhere through the valley and have access. We've got a couple areas right now that we're still working on getting, but for the majority, you can you can get fiber optics throughout. And, you know, I mean, that's fast. Mm-hmm. You've got the tech, you've got the dinosaurs. What else would you tell somebody who's never been to Drumheller about your area? Well, I, I think, you know, we're, we've got some, right now this council is very strong working with administration, and we've got some incredible um, incentive bylaws and and projects that we've put together that are some of the best in the country. So I would, if you're looking at starting a business, you know, contact us and get hold of our, our economic development manager. That was another big thing that this council brought in was, was you know, we're looking at, at you know, building within our own as well as, uh, I was just in Ottawa last weekend, we had some foreign direct investment meetings with ambassadors from different different countries. So we're very open. We want to be we want to be open for business. We're looking for, you know, we're great because we've got this incredible tourism thing that many communities would love, and we just want to build on that. And you have to be loud and proud and shout your message around the world, so that's great. And, and the unique landscape really makes Drumheller so cool. I mean, you you got the Ghostbusters movie filming there, but there's so much going on in the town that maybe people don't realize. So I think that's, you know, it's it's great that you're getting the message out there. Oh yes, I mean films. I believe I last I heard we had eight. We've had eighty some films throughout the community, and that's where you can 
you can film as though you're standing on the moon and you can film as though you're riding, you know, a horse in the field. Mm-hmm. It's, and then, you know, yeah, I, I'm born and raised here. So, of course, I, 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 <laughs> I love of, it. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of biased. But, but it is cool. You know, even, yeah, even when you drive down, you know, you go up on top and then you drive back into the valley. It's like, wow, you know, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty lucky. It's pretty spectacular. I think a lot of times the big city folks uh, flock to Drumheller in the summer and, uh, you know, just for the great outdoors. But uh, your uh, town is open 365 days a year, and there's a lot to do year-round, isn't there? Oh, yeah, and that's that's the thing we're trying to to promote. Like, you know, right now we just finished putting a, you know, really fun toboggan hill in that's, that, you know, we are surrounded by hills, but a lot of our hills are, are privately owned, but we've been working with one of the owners and we put a fun little toboggan hill in. So, yeah, I mean, you can go snowmobiling or snowshoeing or, you know, cross-country skiing. There's just so much. We have an incredible community facility that has, you know, great weight rooms, great, great field house, you know, and it's a senior's a millennial and I'm in the middle, <laughs> you know, so we, we're working to, to have everybody enjoy the Valley. I mean, for seniors, I actually had a neighbor who, who moved in from Calgary and he said he just loves it here because he can still drive. We're mm-hmm. in the city. He's not able to. And the weather is nice. It's warm there. I, I think it's great what you're doing. Diversify entrepreneurship. It's, it's something the you know, city of Calgary is working on. And it's good to hear that uh, Drum and maybe hopefully all across Alberta is doing the same to get more people into our province to, to boost things, get things moving again. Yeah, we we have to start, you know, we have to work towards this because we can't, you know, just sit and hold our hands and wait and hope when something comes. And that's, you know, in fact right now we're working on an R V project that we wanna be the we wanna be the Arizona in the summer and then when they leave in the winter they you know, they go to Arizona and they come back and visit us all summer. So we are really looking at lots of different we're very, very open and very forward thinking and I'm super excited. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun here. Good for you. Great plans. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. You too. Heather Kohlberg is the mayor of Drumheller, and you can get more at traveldrumheller.com. 719 on the morning news. Mount Royal University is holding inclusion workshops designed to help with entrepreneurship, training to Indigenous groups, women, newcomers, and youth. Joining us now to tell us more is Judy McMillan-Evans. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. Judy, when do these workshops take place? So we just finished the first pilot series, uh, wrapped up on Saturday, and we start another one the beginning of May. So what was the reaction like for the first set of workshops, and and who did you see showing up for them? Uh, Really good question. Um, What was the reaction? Uh, Very, very positive. Um, Entrepreneurship is not an easy journey, especially for anyone who's never, of course, gone down that road. And so the five-day series takes the mystery out of it, gives the participants lots of tools and resources and strategies for success. And who did we see show up? Well, the program is focused on um, new Canadians, Indigenous population, women, youth, and people with disabilities. And so that covers a huge broad spectrum of our population. Mm -hmm. And... uh, uh, we started the first day with 55 students, and we finished the last day with, uh, we were about 40. So some self-eliminated, which is also an extremely valuable learning curve. True. Is is this the right time? Is this the right uh, occupation for me? 
And the energy, so I was very fortunate. I got to teach the first day and I got to teach the last day. So I saw the transition, um, the excitement, the positive, uh, even the evolution of the business ideas was really strong. Uh, Some started out with one idea and realized, hmm, that's not going to work. And by the last day had a a whole nother idea that was far more viable. So it's very exciting. So who do you hope to see to come out to future uh, workshops? Are these people who are already in the entrepreneurship world or just think it'd be a good idea to do their own thing? All about, um, so I've been teaching entrepreneurship at Mount Royal for 28 years. Um, and uh, typically what we see, and this is exactly what we saw with this group, about 30% are already in business and they don't know if they're doing things right so uh, the program is for those that are already in business and are not sure and those that are thinking about it. So both, and they make a beautiful, rich group of people because those that don't know if they've done it right have amazing stories to tell. And I mean, that's what we're looking for in this province. So I think it's wonderful. So uh, once again, new session starts May through June. How do people get a hold of the information to get themselves registered for this class, Judy? They can go to mtroyal.ca, and the easiest way to find the program is type in innovation, and it'll take you right to the link. Thank you so much for joining us. Great program. Love what you're doing. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Judy, bye-bye. bye-bye. Judy McMillan-Evans is an entrepreneurship instructor at MRU.